Hello, I'm Kate Chabot and welcome to SITREP, where each week we analyse the key defence and security issues shaping the UK and the world. What should NATO countries do to protect themselves from future extreme threats? We hear from NATO's Assistant Secretary General for Defence Investment. The Defence Secretary outlines the challenges behind the Integrated Defence and Security Review. The global picture has changed. Our enemies have studied our vulnerabilities and adapted far more quickly than us. But what technology should the UK invest in to meet the challenges of the future? And 80 years on, the Battle of Britain remembered. I think it's a tremendous legacy and hopefully we never have to repeat it. But when you think of the, the sacrifices made by Bomber Command and all the services, including Fighter Command during the war, is quite immense. The Defence Secretary warned this week the UK's armed forces will have to be more nimble to counter new threats from Russia and China. Ben Wallace said that the wide-ranging integrated review of defence and security policy that's underway will create an armed forces fit for future battles. The global picture has changed. Our enemies have studied our vulnerabilities and adapted far more quickly than us. The static concept of war versus peace no longer applies as we are contested on either side of the threshold of armed conflict on a regular basis. Our values and interests are being challenged in the grey zone all over the world. The Defence Secretary Ben Wallace. Well, the question of what are the possible long-term extreme threats to the UK is being discussed at a conference today, hosted by the Royal Aeronautical Society and the Royal United Services Institute. It will look at issues including weapons of mass destruction, space technologies and space warfare, the future of biological threats and cyber technology. The conference will be addressed by NATO Assistant Secretary-General for Defence Investment, Camille Grand. I spoke to him earlier. Well, my message is, is a bit uh, twofold. Is, uh, first of all, uh, we have to consider extreme uh, threats, uh, not only to the UK, but to uh, our uh, European and transatlantic security. Uh, those threats can come uh, from uh, a form of return to great power competition, but also from uh, other uh, non-state-based events that, that we really need to, to look at, whether they come from technology, from the environment, and so on. And from that perspective, I think it is it is a, a, an excellent topic to, to be discussing this, but also uh, that as, as NATO allies, as the UK, uh, we really uh, need to factor this in, you know, thinking about the strategic environment. And what's your thinking on where the greatest threats are coming from? Are they from countries, actors, or, or as you say, the environment or other domains? I think it's it's fair to recognise that uh, our environment has become very uncertain and unpredictable. Um, something like COVID-19 makes that uh, point very strongly uh, that, you know, uh, maybe a year ago, none of our organisations and, and, and countries would have to uh, factor in a pandemic as the a, a something of... of uh, that would have such an impact on our societies, on the way we operate, uh, uh, on our economies, but also on that. But we also have to recognize that next to that unpredictability coming from uh, the environment, from from, uh, health and and sanitary crisis, we also need to look at a a very volatile um, uh, environment when it comes to core security threats. And, and, And from that perspective, the reality compared to where we were uh, uh, 10 or 15 years ago, uh, when we were very focused on terrorism, is to also recognize that uh, great power competition, including forms of the arms race, uh, are, are becoming very much part of our environment. 
and do create new form of extreme threats uh, to our, country, our, our countries and our alliance. Which countries are we talking about which pose the greatest threat? Uh, obviously, both uh, China and, and Russia are part of this environment of peer competitors uh, who are uh, very active uh, across the, the spectrum of uh, military capabilities, but also in the cyber domain. Uh, and, and, and this is something that we cannot ignore uh, as, we, as we think through our security or defense requirements uh, and so on. The issue, uh, of course, as always when discussing threats, is uh, uh, we have to balance uh, the risks uh, and the, the, the impacts of uh, the consequences of a, um, a, a major crisis involving a major power uh, and the likelihood. Uh, and I'm not saying here that we are on the verge of a major war, but uh, uh, what is certain is that we do see uh, major uh, powers. Uh, using uh, military uh, tools more and more, and also building up their military capabilities in a number of uh, domains, uh, and and from that perspective, uh, posing uh, a, a question to us as uh, NATO, uh, to uh, the European nations and or North American allies, to what's the best way to tackle that uh, new environment. And where do you think the UK should be building up its defences to meet those future threats? Well, to me, uh, there, there are two, two sets of issues there. Uh, one is to, uh, as a society, uh, to really work on, on this, um, um, what has become a bit of a buzzword, but we need to put substance into it, which is resilience. You know, how can we be resilient? The UK society has proved extraordinarily resilient to terrorism uh, over time, for instance, and, and, and we've all admired the way that uh, Londoners could go back to work on the next day or go through a, a, a series of events associated uh, with, uh, in, for a moment, with the IRA uh, and, and later with a, a, a form of radical Islamic terrorism. But that resilience needs to be now built up also in light of, of other uh, uh, global uh, threats and extreme threats associated uh, uh, with uh, or um, uh, pandemics and so on. Next to that, I think we really need to think about our uh, resilience to disruption of our IT systems, of our space services. I mean, these things are now becoming very much part of our thinking and, 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 and as that. And finally, at the end of the spectrum, uh, and coming closer to core military requirements, uh, we have to recognize that um, uh, competition with peer adversaries uh, maybe requires to revisit uh, some very existential capabilities so that, as an example, navies, and the British Navy has, is very much part of that particular discussion, uh, can continue to monitor what's happening, let's say, in the North Atlantic, uh, because uh, some some of those uh, critical threats could well come from 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 uh, the loss of the control of those global commons, whether we're talking about the high seas, the outer space, or cyberspace. On the subject of cyber, in 2018, the NATO summit agreed on a new cyberspace operations centre. How far has that got? I mean, we've moved uh, definitely moved forward. Uh, we've recognised cyber as a domain of operation. We also recognize that specific cyber effects are in the hands of nations, hence the importance of seeing uh, allies, including the UK, being, being on, the, on, the, on top of their game in that domain. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, on, on cyber, I mean, it, it is a 
an ongoing battle. Uh, you know, the cyber operations uh, don't start on uh, the day of a declaration of war. It is a daily challenge to ensure the security of our own networks, to improve our cyber defenses. Uh, and from that perspective, uh, NATO with the Allies is really, really working to make sure that we um, we stay in the lead on, on, on that game, uh, which is extraordinarily demanding because it is uh, something where uh, the threat environment evolves literally uh, on a daily basis. The NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg said this month, we don't want a new Cold War, we don't want a new arms race, but we have to make sure that we are adapting as the world is changing. Is there not a real danger of a new technological arms race in space and in the cyber world? The Secretary General has been on the record for saying we, we are not engaged in an arms race with anyone and that's not the way we, we approach security. It is uh, nevertheless true that uh, in an environment where major powers are investing massively into um, uh, counter space uh, or cyber technologies, we can't uh, um, uh, sit on our hands and, and hope that this will not have consequences. So from that perspective, we really have to think through these more contested, more congested environments, whether it's the cyber domain or the space domain, and what can NATO do in bringing the allies together to uh, counter, deter uh, attacks in those environments as well, uh, and not being an alliance that is focused on 20th century threats when this is, uh, we see that uh, being, being, being very much part of the new environment. Camille Grand, NATO Assistant Secretary General for Defence Investment. Well, I'm joined by Professor Paul Rogers, Emeritus Professor of Peace Studies at the University of Bradford, and our Defence Analyst Christopher Lee. Uh, Paul Rogers, what would you pick out from that interview? I would pick out some of the things he said at the start. Uh, he did mention the environmental issues. He did mention pandemics. In a sense, uh, so much of the rest of the, the interview is, if you like, more his, not historic in a way, but basically more conventional and looking at, you know, the NATO we know and what it does. But we're in a very changed world. We're still in the early days of a global pandemic and we don't know when it's going to end and what economic effect it will have. And we have climate breakdown essentially accelerating. These are the two really big issues. For myself, as far as the British Integrated Review is concerned, I would have advocated it postponing it for between a year and 18 months uh, because we just simply don't know where we're going to be at the end of 2021. The fact that he mentioned the pandemic and mentioned broadly environmental factors was good, but to my mind, these should be centre stage, uh, and that was not the case. So uh, disappointing to me to some extent, I have to say. OK. Uh, Christopher, how much is NATO coordinating countries, cyber and other defences? NATO has never been successful at this, you know. If you go back to the, I suppose, the early 80s, when they said that all countries ought to be able to sort of work together perfectly. So in, in basic terms, if you want refueling, you can refuel from anybody's bowser. Simple. Didn't work at all. What has excited people, though, to work together is cyber, in as much that they can do it. They can do small parts of it and join in with other people. The other part of it is is not working so well, but it should do eventually. And that is probably far more to do with climate change, where it becomes far more obvious. They get a bit of a, bit of a jolt from their electorate that they ought to be doing far more. On it. And Paul, we hear a lot about hypersonic missiles. Can you explain how they work and what impact they might have? Well, essentially, these are missiles which... Uh, go within the atmosphere, just about very thin atmosphere. Uh, they're usually based on a technology known as ramjet or scramjet, 
basically those are jet engines in which you don't get fan compression before combustion. You use the, the speed of the air coming into the system. And if it's a scramjet, that is supersonic combustion ramjet, then essentially it's got to be going very fast. They're very fast systems once they're up and running. They have to be almost primed, got up to a certain speed in each case. But the point is they are within the atmosphere just about, and so they are steerable. They may even be put in place by a, a conventional missile. But essentially, so they're very fast, uh, anything up to seven, 8,000 miles an hour. Uh, but at the same time, you can actually steer them. They're maneuverable, which makes them rather more difficult to spot than a missile which is in a true ballistic path. Uh, they're certainly pretty high technology. They've been around a long time, but huge amounts of investment is going in in the United States and China and Russia and some other countries as well. And Christopher, standing on the deck of HMS Tamar this week, the Defence Secretary was photographed with drones capable of carrying out underwater surveillance or, or delivering a range of payloads. This is an example, is it, of future capabilities? It's an example of now capabilities. What the Navy's been looking at, and it was, uh, and it's, it's moved very quickly on a thing called the T-400. And the T-400 is, can operate, say, from your, your master ship or your mother ship, not too far, say, 12, 14 miles away. What you can also do is use drones for delivering payloads on your deck things that you want to get when you're standing offshore when you can't get close to a perhaps a mothership to, to, to get them. And that's what they can do. They are they enhance your flexibility of operating and they're not all armed. Gentlemen, stay with us. This is Sitrap. The sound of the spitfire at the commemoration this week of the 80th anniversary of the Battle of Britain, a defining moment in the Second World War. Against the odds, the RAF beat back successive waves of German aerial attacks. Tim Cooper's been looking back 80 years on. I'm watching some German newsreel footage of Adolf Hitler standing looking at the Eiffel Tower in Paris in 1940. It's pretty eerie, this. Germany had just swept aside France, Belgium, the Netherlands, Denmark and Luxembourg and pushed the British into the sea at Dunkirk. Here's aviation historian Paul Beaver. They looked unstoppable. The only thing that really was stopping them from dominating Western Europe um, was the English Channel um, and Britain. And it was Britain Hitler had his sights on next. He'd used the same tactics pioneered during the Spanish Civil War, honed during the invasion of Poland and polished during the rout of Western Europe. Of primary importance was gaining air superiority. And despite heavy losses, the Luftwaffe was supremely confident. They felt they could still roll up the Brits. They thought that um, we didn't have a plan, we didn't have any air defence, we didn't have any radar. They thought it would be very easy... Um, Goering even said at one stage it would take him two weeks for his glorious Luftwaffe to wipe the Royal Air Force from the sky. So they really didn't have a plan. They were going to do it on the back of a fag packet. It seemed plausible that Goering might be right. The army was in such a poor state after Dunkirk, having lost much of its heavy equipment. The Navy, though, was much better prepared. Unfortunately, since 1936, the RAF had been modifying and vastly improving its inventory of planes and people. August 8th, 1940, and the battle for Britain is on. 30 enemy aircraft over the channel, flying due west. The RAF was outnumbered about 10 to 1. The Luftwaffe thought they could draw them into the air and then shoot them all down, but they couldn't. 
The pilots of the RAF proved resilient and skillful. During the battle, the UK continually had proportionally more pilots available than the Luftwaffe, and production of new aircraft broadly kept pace with losses successfully. On the 7th of September, losses were overtaken by production and stayed that way through the war. Spitfires, Hurricanes, Blenheims, Defiants and Gladiators all fought an array of German planes, spearheaded by the Messerschmitt Bf 109. From flying the aircraft, it's very much the ability of the pilot that counts. And yes, the Bf 109 has some advantages uh, because of its uh, fuel injection, for example, it could dive away from combat. But the Hurricane Spitfire could outturn it. Uh, the Spitfire could outclimb it. Um, it depends on, on the day, the pilot, the weather conditions, the fuel. So the Germans were using 87 octane fuel, we were using 100 octane fuel, which meant that the Merlin engine, like the one behind me in the Spitfire, was able to develop more power at altitude. That gave you a speed advantage. Other advantages came from organisation. Information from the observers on the coast and state-of-the-art radar was all centralised and plotted, meaning the progress of attacks could be monitored and the right assets deployed at the right time to the right place. But the continued onslaught was taking its toll. Fighter command was straining. They received well-needed respite from the attacks on their airfields from Hitler himself. Unexpectedly, he switched focus to civilian bombing. Fighter command recovered. They were not to be beaten. There was to be no invasion. The Battle of Britain was won by incredible bravery, superb organisation, excellent aeroplanes, and above all, a unified national determination not to be beaten. Well, Group Captain Patrick Tootle is the secretary of the Battle of Britain Memorial Trust, which looks after the National Memorial to the few at Capel of Thurn in Kent. He told me how the Trust is still identifying the names of air crew who fought in the Battle of Britain through the help of family members. We're finding the generation on, the, the immediate generation of the few, they're far more interested and prepared to come up with photographs, memorabilia and more information. And we're not just talking about British pilots, are we? Is it right that around a fifth of uh, Fighter Command's aircrew came from overseas? Oh, yes, indeed, from the Commonwealth nations, Poles, Free French, the Czechs. Um, so it was a real conglomeration of nationalities. And there have been cancellations, though, because of COVID to commemorate the 80th anniversary. Um, how hard has it been to organise this? Battle of Britain Day for us, particularly down at Moor, is very important. Normally we have an act of remembrance at 11, we have up to about 10 standard bearers, the general public are there, and we go through a small act. But um, this year we thought we can't attract people um, because of the rules, so just the three of us, trustees and the manager, we did a small act of remembrance which we filmed, and we're putting out on Facebook and into the media. And your father, Jack Toodle, died when the Halifax bomber he was piloting was shot down during a mission in 1945. What do you right. think the legacy of their generation will be to us? I think it's a tremendous legacy and hopefully we never have to repeat it. But when you think of the, the sacrifices made by Bomber Command and all the services, including Fighter Command during the war, is quite immense. Uh, 540 plus in the um, Fighter Command, 5, more than 5,600 in, in Bomber Command. Sorry, Spitfire's going over at the moment. The, the legacy is, is the sacrifices that people made. You know, talking to my mother, you know, it's, uh, I don't think she ever recovered of being widowed at 21 with a small son 
although I had a super stepfather, she became very reclusive in later in life. And I think that must have been what we call now PTSD. But the sacrifice, not only for the armed forces, but for the home front as well, you know, people in the Blitz and all the rest. Um, it was really a nation at arms and everyone was fighting the war. And is there anything that we should, or what should we learn from them and what they did? I think it's really the self-sacrifice that people went to. You know, we had a cause to fight. And bar, bar a few, you always get a few, everyone was on on the side that we were going to win. Well, I'm joined still by Professor Paul Rogers, Emeritus Professor of Peace Studies at the University of Bradford and our defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Uh, Paul Rogers, one of the most iconic battles of the Second World War and key. Uh, Yes, I think very much so. I mean, and people have personal memories. I was born during the war, but my father was in the fire brigade in London throughout the war. One of my last conversations with him at the end of the 60s, just before I went to work abroad, it was when he'd uh, his our family relocated to Sandgate near Folkestone, and he'd been out watching the replay of the Battle of Britain when they were making that film, you know, with twenty or more Hurricanes and Spitfires and ME one oh nines in the air. And I know it sent a real chill down his spine. It brought back some extraordinary memories. So in a sense, I mean, it's it's become an iconic event much more than you would expect uh, because of its sheer nature. Uh, And I expect that will last a long time, even through to further generations. And Christopher, witnessed by the civilian population. Yes, and it it wasn't just uh, the bombing of London, for example, as sometimes it is shown. It was the ports, the channel ports especially, uh, civilian targets, then London, the terrible blitz on on London. The other part of this, it it was a wider population, it was a population from overseas, where a lot of the aircrew, for example, would have started off, um, something like something like twenty percent of them, and so it was always waiting for people, waiting for letters, waiting for news, what was going on, because it was something that was going on here in the United Kingdom. And remember, this was the first time that the people of the United Kingdom uh, were subject to warfare since 1066. Gentlemen, thank you very much. News, discussions and analysis. This is Sitwell. Now, the Prime Minister has been speaking at the Commons Liaison Committee about defence spending. Our correspondent James Hurst was watching. James, what did he say? It came down, frankly, to six key words from the Prime Minister that indicated, despite the economic storm from the COVID pandemic, the overall defence budget should be protected from cuts. Of course, there has been worry. You've got the government spending an extra quarter of a trillion pounds in a year, and in that same time frame, the economy expected to shrink by 10%. Now, this comes at the same time as that integrated review that you were discussing earlier. As as Paul mentioned, they're trying to shape defence for decades to come in an economic storm. And so Tobias Elwood, who chairs the Commons Defence Committee, asked the PM to commit to a previous double lock for defence spending. Will you commit to uh, ignoring now the 2% GDP, because that means little because of the pandemic and the impact on the economy, but a real terms growth 0.5% increase in our defence budget as previously committed by the last government? And this was the key part of the Prime Minister's reply. We are uh, increasing uh, our defence budget by 2.6% 
uh, above inflation in 2019, 2020, 2021, uh, where the only, uh, we've made the 0.5 uh, commitment from which we do not uh, resile. And Boris Johnson's election manifesto stated that commitment from which they do not resile is to keep the defence budget increasing in real terms, not just to the next spending review, but for all five years of this parliament. And James, what would that mean for future spending, though, if GDP and inflation are very low? Essentially what it means is the theoretical spending power of the defence budget is going to stay on a stable track. Yes, if inflation falls or even goes into negative territory, the budget numbers would have to be revised down. But its real terms value in the UK, at least, would be protected from shrinks in the economy. It doesn't remove all the bumps. It can't, for example, allow for shifts between the pound and the dollar, and that is where a lot of defence spending happens. But it keeps a a much more predictable path for that defence review, provided that commitment remains as the Prime Minister strongly suggested. James Hurst, thank you. Well, let's return now to the Battle of Britain for a rare and personal account of that pivotal moment in history. It comes in the form of secret letters written by 257 Squadron Intelligence Officer to his wife, who was trapped with their two children in occupied France. I looked at your photo yesterday, Ducky, quite calmly as if I was seeing you in a fortnight's time. Showed it to Jimmy and Charlie. I remained calm all the time. They didn't know what I was going through. But the letters written by pilot officer Geoffrey Myers to his wife Margot were never posted. Geoffrey Myers died in 1982 and some of his letters have now been published in a book called Secret Letters by John Willis. Well, he was uh, an intelligence officer whose job it was to report back on all the successes and failures on a daily basis so that those commanding the RAF could put together the jigsaw puzzle of exactly what was happening on every day. And in secret letters, he kept a diary that was uh, both very raw and very visceral about the Battle of Britain, but also very tender and warm about his relationship with his wife, who was stuck in Nazi-occupied France. And why were his wife and children trapped in France exactly? She she was French um, and they had a family home there that had served them very well as a place of safety in the First World War. And so uh, she thought she would be safe there with the rest of her family. Uh, That turned out to be a mistake because bit by bit the Germans started to tighten the noose around her and she was forced to either stay and risk being arrested and probably killed or to try a rather dangerous escape um, through the rest of France across the demarcation line uh, to Spain, uh, Portugal, and hopefully to the UK after that. And the book portrays his twin anxieties of the tragedies of his unit and his family's dangerous isolation. Can you describe what he was living through on a daily basis? I think this this is what makes the letter so special, is during the day he was worried by the fact that the young men, and the average age was about 20 in his squadron, were being decimated. It was a badly run squadron that was probably the most hard hit in terms of deaths and injuries in the first few weeks of the Battle of Britain. At the same time, he had no contact with his wife. It was too dangerous to send the letters, too dangerous to send messages. So he had no idea whether she was dead, alive, arrested by the Germans. 
So uh, he says he, he used to have what he called day nightmares about his family. And then during the day, he was desperate about the young men who he felt semi-responsible for. And he also describes when he had to break the bad news of a pilot, pilot's deaths and of the Luftwaffe's terrifying bombing raids on civilians and RAF bases. It got harder for him the longer it went on, didn't it? I think that as the battle went on, his feelings intensified. His feelings intensified about the tragedy that was happening all around him with the young men, whether they were injured in a bombing raid or shot down. And I think it intensified his anxiety and his love for his wife. And there was a very happy ending because, as you described earlier, his wife did attempt to escape. How did she get out exactly from occupied France? Well, it was an extraordinary escape. She was only in her mid-twenties. She had a four-year-old child and a two-year-old. And she escaped with the help of a, a people smuggler, really, a, what they call a passeur, who took them across the demarcation line between Nazi-occupied France and Vichy France, which was still a dangerous place to be. Apart from their passport, they had no possessions, no clothes, nothing, because that would have aroused suspicions with the border guards. And it was complicated by the fact that Geoffrey was Jewish, so, of course, that added extra fear, an extra level of fear for all of them. But she managed it, managed it in a resourceful way. She crossed the demarcation line safely with a bit of luck. And then she made it by train all the way down through Vichy, France, and then from Madrid, Barcelona, down to Lisbon, where she got a boat home. But what was extraordinary about it is that a few days after she left the family home, the Germans came round or asked the mayor, where is that English woman? We need to talk to her. So she escaped absolutely in the nick of time. An incredible personal story from the Battle of Britain. And that's it from me, Kate Chabot, and from Christopher Lee. Thanks to all of our guests. Don't forget, you can always get in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP. And while you're online, why not subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode in future at bfbs.com slash SITREP. For now, though, thanks for listening. Bye-bye. 